Hello and what is up, Bowl Crew? Before we get to the podcast that you are here to listen to, I just want to make a special announcement. The Twin Cities by Night crew has decided to add an additional member to the gang. What does that entail? That means that not only will you be able to potentially play in a future Demon the Fallen game that we will be running for a podcast and YouTube series, but you'll also be able to become part of the gang and be involved in future podcasts and other games that we may have going on on the channel. So how can you apply for this? First, you'll need to stop by our Discord that you can find in this podcast description and get details on how to apply. We'll be accepting applications until September 30th, 2018. And from there, we'll make a decision. We will let you know if you are the one who will become part of the Twin Cities by Night gang. I hope to see you all there. And if you have any questions, you can reach out to us on that same Discord. Good luck. Now I bring to you the future podcast. Warning, the following podcast contains violent scenes that may be unsettling to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Bryant Book Club. So one of the most amazing things that I found being on social media, promoting Twin Cities by Night, and just kind of getting to know other content creators that are in the social media scene for White Wolf, World of Darkness type games, is you kind of get to, you get recommendations all the time on reading material, you know, like, oh, you should check this out, you should check this out. Uh, And sometimes there are a handful of books and media that are usually commonly thrown your way when you're asking for recommendations on on what you should read to get some kind of inspiration. And one of them is a graphic novel, I guess, collection of comics that we'll be talking about today, which will be Grant Morrison's Invisibles Volume 1. For those of you who don't know, Invisibles is a comic that was released by Vertigo Comics, which was, I guess, like a sub company of DC Comics. And it was written by Grant Morrison around 1994 is when it started at the time. Now, I've had quite a few people actually recommend this to me. I had Brendan from Full Metal RPG, uh, who was actually going to be here today with me, but uh, due to, you know, other things that came up, couldn't make it. And Joe from Mage, the podcast, both strongly recommended this series for me for inspiration for Mage. So check out both those podcasts, Full Metal RPG and Mage, the podcast. Great guys support the scene but yeah so they were very adamant about how great this book was and so i went ahead and and i got the first book which i believe has the first 12 issues of the invisibles in there and man where do i start i absolutely fell in love with it so much great inspiration you know for those of you may not know the invisibles has a very much a mage the ascension vibe to it you know like where There are a group of people who are, for lack of a better term, mages, can bend reality, can do certain things, and they are combating kind of like a darker group, which really strikes me as like the Nefendi, and I believe that's how it's pronounced, the Nefendian mage, the Infernalist, very dark side of people who are trying to stop them. And it's kind of about the first book, at least I mean, is kind of about this leader of this group, the invisibles or one of the leaders trying to recruit this younger boy. Who's kind of just recently had his awakening and away in mage. And they're trying to guide him uh, to become part of this group to fight, uh, to fight this darker, I guess, group. 
uh, you know, it was written in the early 90s. One of the things that really stands out is how this comic really pushes the boundaries of some things. It has a lot of subjects at the time that were that were taboo, I guess, or that weren't really often talked about in comics. You know, it talked about transvestites. It talked about S&M. It talked about kind of darker themes up to the to the story that, like I said, you really didn't find at the time, you know, vertical comics, probably most well known for Neil Gaiman's Sandman were comics that were for mature readers. I remember being a teen in like the early nineties and knowing that, that, like they were the edgy comic. They were the guys who wore leather jackets and who didn't give a shit, you know, who didn't want to write about superheroes who wanted to make a comics for adults. And I just remember think at that time, thinking it was really cool. Matter of fact, when I was a teen, I read Sandman Mystery Theater. That was the only vertical comic I read at the time. And I thought that was so rad. I just thought it was so edgy and cool compared to like other comics that, you know, that kids read at the, at the time. So what are some inspirations that I took away from this? Well, obviously there's major the Ascension inspirations left and fucking right. But I want to kind of get into the weeds a little bit and specifically talk about maybe a couple issues of the comic that are in this first book collection and tell you tell how I feel it can be used. So one of my favorite absolute issues in this collection is Down and Out in Heaven and Hell Part 2, where I guess one of the protagonists is kind of the younger teenage boy in London who kind of just is in the process of awakening, has this homeless guy who I guess is kind of helping him guide him through the awakening and takes him around the city. Now, what I really like about this comic is the fact that he has this kid take a hallucinogen of sorts and he explains to the kid the power that a city holds. And I think that's one thing that I enjoy absolutely the most, perhaps in the in the Vampire the Masquerade Twin Seas by Night games that I run, or even like the Ultimate Evil, which takes place in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is a mortals game, is the power that a city has. You know, if you read such books like Salem's Lot and different Stephen King books, just different books, period, like, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, the power of a city and a horror story is, is amazing. It really is. If you think about it, you know, you don't know what is going on in those dark alleyways. Your imagination may try to fill in the blanks. You don't know what's going on in that creepy warehouse at night. Your imagination will try to fill in the blanks. You don't know that man who's walking down the street who just doesn't feel right. You don't know what he's doing, but your imagination may try to answer that. And I feel that sometimes in World of Darkness, White Wolf games, some people don't really try to focus on the 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 city being one of the main characters. I really try to do that. I don't know if I'm successful or not, to be honest with you, but I really try to do that in our Twin Cities by Night game and The Ultimate Evil I did. Because I think a, a city can add a whole layer of eeriness. And one thing that's really awesome about this issue down and out in heaven to hell part two is the fact that the guide really gets into what a city is and how you can learn to communicate with cities and how when cities were first started being built at the dawn of civilization, it was almost like a spread. It was an, it was an enlightenment that humans had and how, if you learn to communicate with the city, you can find answers through like the neon of night signs or the architecture of buildings or the sounds that the streets make. And it was just so beautifully well done because I find as a storyteller who wants to make a city, a main character in the story that I tell, 
it's really hard to come across as really hard to like push that forward. It's really hard to make that up front. And I find that one way that I do it is through that I try to do it is through narrative and through description. I really try really hard to describe suburbs, the cities, how the character is, has this, has this natural relationship with the city where it feeds off the city. And in a way, maybe the city feeds off of them. And one of the things that this issue helps is providing narrative to explain the city, you know, using your descriptions, using your narrative to pull in the players to understand the power that the city has and how they affect the city. If you think about this, a typical vampire, the masquerade game, and I, I think the unofficial, I mean, there's no rule, the golden rule, but the unofficial rule is per every 100,000 kind that reside in a city, there should be one kindred. When you think about that, you have 30, 40, whatever kindred in a city. These kindred are almost like ants in an ant farm. You know, they're drawn to cities. They, 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 they politic in these cities. They try to carve parts of these cities as their own. They feed off the people who reside in the city. They taint the city in a way. They bring an eeriness to the city. And if you take away a city as a character or a backdrop in a game like that, what do you have? You really don't have anything. You have a tale of people, of, of monsters. That's it. You know, humanity doesn't have the impact that it has unless it's unless that kindred resides in a city where they're trying to fit in, where they're different. You can use a city to describe just how alien a kindred is. You know, I had a really powerful scene in our current story arc, Dread, with one of the characters, Katow, where he almost frenzied and he had a feed in a suburban middle-class neighborhood, you know, not in the middle of the Twin Cities, on the outskirts. And I described him like being an antibody that was in the city that didn't belong, you know, and he was desperately trying to find a way to feed. And it was one of the most intense, eerie scenes that I've had to run, and it was totally off the top of my head. But I was able to fall back on that simply because I treated the city like another character. So if you want to find inspiration for that, read that read that issue. I'm serious. It's really was beautifully written by Grant Morrison. And, you know, some of the prose that he does really elevates this to be more than a comic. It's simply not just a comic. This is a this is a story that's being told that could easily be told in any other medium. And maybe one day it will be. Who knows? Another issue that really struck home to me. And it was weird because it was the final issue. So it was this nice, like, closing touch to this to, to this wonderful book was Best Man Fall. And before I talk about that comic the, or that issue, Best Man Fall, I want to talk about something that kind of bugs me at times when it comes to, like, the whole World of Darkness White Wolf thing. So I, I, I'm i not a big Werewolf the Apocalypse player. I've never played the game, but I absolutely love the concept of Pentex. I actually almost ran a game at one point that was going to take place in 1992 or 93 in northern L.A. County in what's called the Antelope Valley, where players were playing, were going to play Pentex employees who who were just normal people who were working for, I forgot the subsidiary that dealt with pharmaceuticals, who worked for the pharmaceutical subsidiary. And that was doing testing on a prison on prisoners that were in a prison there in the desert. And it was kind of going to be like this desert horror, I guess, theme game along with a little bit of like devil's advocate, you know, slowly realizing you're working for a, a horrible company or whatever. And I, I, you know, whatever, like a lot of ideas I have about running games just really don't come to fruition. Maybe one day they will. But one thing that when I'm like reading forums or seeing people type or whatever about Pentex, a lot of people just 
I don't know, treat it like every single person who works for Pentex is evil or just that Pentex in itself is evil. You know, one thing that drew, really drew me to World of Darkness, at least me, is that there's no black and white. There's gray. You know, there's no good vampires because you're always going to have the beast on your shoulder. I mean, you could try to be good. You could try to be humane. I personally think that Golaconda is a myth, but the beast is always going to be lingering there. And, you know, and I always think that absolute black in the world of darkness should be very rare. And I think it should be in instances where there is infernalism. And I think infernalism shouldn't be something that's common. I think infernalism shouldn't be something that a player plays. This is just me. Because I think that when you make something absolutely evil, kind of takes away the power of being the grayscale. So where am I getting with this point? I have a really hard time when I see people treat Pentex like this absolute evil. Worm, it's the worm, worm taint. And they want to treat every absolute thing about it like it's evil. But who's to say that they are evil in their minds? That evil, evil is subjective, right? Maybe some of these people in Pentex. I know there's a whole board of directors in Pentex. And I'm not going to get into the canon thing ran by Black Spiral Dancers and all that jazz. But I'm just talking about more grounded view of Pentex, right? What if these people really think they're doing the right thing? You know, What if they think that they are helping people, humanity, the world? You know, I'm sure guru are still doing that too but they kind of maybe are maybe too fanatical at times maybe they're gray in their own way they're not absolutely right so one of the reasons why i like that best man fall it really takes this oh it's such an intimate view of i guess like a foot soldier for this evil group that's in the invisibles you see them off in throughout the book you see them in the background they run around with guns kind of like cobra and gi joe and they're sitting there like just kind of shooting at the good guys but this last fucking comic man holy shit was it a fucking gut punch it basically told the story and it, it jumps throughout different periods of a, a single man's time and it tells a story about like a pretty much of a man a, a, and i'm gonna tell it chronologically and there's some spoilers here so forewarning but they jump back and forth through different time periods of this story but anyways it tells the story of a young boy living in london who had an abusive parent you know had like a dad who would get drunk abuse his mom had an older brother who was rather mean to him sweet boy you know, who ended up leaves out on his own experience, his life meets the love of his life, ends up joining the military because he finds out she's pregnant, gets wounded in war. His brother gets in a motorcycle accident and his last words to this character is that he never really loved him. So this wounded man, this wounded veteran who's a hero in some people's eyes, whose own brother told him that he didn't love him before he died, gets married and has a kid who has cerebral palsy. I think it was our MS. And then finds himself drinking like his father and finds himself not knowing his lot in life, probably dealing with issues of PTSD, not fitting into society like a lot of vets have, not feeling truly alive and finds himself, you know, laying hands on his wife like his father laid hands on his mother. And he feels extreme guilt afterwards because he's taken over with these fits of rage and anger that are probably battle scarred from this war that he was injured in. And soon he finds himself unable to find work, but he ends up getting told by a former army buddy that there's a security contracting firm that will hire him. And it just so happens to be the security contracting firm that works for the quote unquote bad guys. And throughout the story, you kind of see that they are leading this character to be actually someone who was in the very first issue of the comic, just some random bad guy who was chasing after the good guy. And they show right before this alarm goes off in his headquarters where they start chasing after the good guy in this that when what happened in the first issue he looks at a letter that his wife left him in his lunch basket in his lunch pail and says i forgive you i'm sorry we, we we can fix this we can fix you and his man's 
overtaken with a sense of purpose. Maybe it's that motivation he needed to hear to where he could fix his ways and stop drinking and not get physical with his wife in front of his handicapped teenage daughter. And right when he has that moment, that epiphany that he can change and that he can do good, that he could fix all this and be that innocent person, that young man full of hope and life that he was before he went to war, an alarm goes off and he grabs his gun and puts on his uniform and he goes chasing this good guy from the first issue and he gets shot in the head by the good guy. And right before he dies, he falls blind and he realizes all the mistakes that he made in his life and he's gone. And I'm not going to lie, when I read that issue, and I'm not a man that's easily brought to tears, it almost brought me to tears because it made you realize that there's no black and white, right? There's always that grayscale. That good guy you're rooting for in the first issue to survive these infernalist hordes and their foot soldiers killed a man who wasn't exactly evil, who made poor decisions. And he killed that man right at the moment that he realized that he could fix his marriage and fix himself. That's some good storytelling. When I read that, I realized if I ever do run a Pentex game, or if I run anything like that with a quote unquote evil corporation or whatever, I'm going to try to do what that story did. I don't think I can in the medium of being the storyteller for an actual play game, but remind the players that there are people sometimes who find themselves in circumstances in life where they're in situations like that. Really good stuff, folks. I cannot, I cannot tell you how much I loved reading this book. One final thing, too, that I liked about The Invisibles, Volume 1, was one thing that I really enjoy and the type of stories I enjoy running is where the bourgeoisie, I think the word is, where the upper crust of society, you know, they are doing evil conspiratorial things. Uh, what's that grove that Alex Jones is always yammering about where they worship some pagan gods and sacrifice people in Northern California? But I like that kind of story because it makes for good fiction. You know, I do think it's conspiracies like that and stories like that is a way maybe for people who, who to, to, to deal with the class system, you know, deal with the fact that they maybe they are will never be up there. So they assume, you know, they're humble. They work hard at the level, the class level they're at. So the people that must be up there in the upper crust, they must not be good people. They must have horrible designs and they must, you know, be conspiratorial and doing these evil parties and orgies and all this stuff, stuff that I do think makes for good fiction. And the Invisibles have that in their story where they have these people who are royal family who go and hunt people in the middle of, you know, the wilderness of London on their mansion acres. And I just to me, I love stories like that. I don't know why. I just think it makes fun entertainment. It makes kind of like these, uh, you know, these people who are just creepy, it adds layers of creepiness when the upper crust of society is up there because they want to do bad things. So in a way, I find that to be awesome and great. So. Do I recommend Grant Morrison's Invisibles Volume 1? Fuck yeah. Yes, I do. I'm actually, matter of fact, in the middle of book two. And I'm going to read this till it's done, folks, because there's so much awesome inspiration that I can use there. So Brendan from Full Metal RPG and Joe from Age of the Ascension, thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for recommending this. And, and to the point where I'm like, wow, these two awesome dudes are recommending this and saying it's inspiration for them. I'm going to read this. And I want to take away inspiration from it. And I really highly suggest all of you read that. And I think you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, if you wish to contact us, you can reach us at twin underscore cities underscore VTM on Twitter or Twin Cities by Night on Facebook. 
You can also find us in the Discord that you will see in the podcast description. If you are a content creator for you know actual plays, articles, or for Onyx Path or White Wolf, and you would like to do a Brian Book Club like Josh Heath from High Level Games, who's also a freelancer for Onyx Path and White Wolf, did for HP Lovecraft uh, collection of short stories, hit me up. I'm more than happy to have you. Let's bring to the people these inspirations that maybe they can use to run their own games. So without further ado, thank you for checking us out, and I will see you next time on The Brian Book Club. Hello, folks. Have you ever wished you could have an easy way to find gameplay videos and podcasts, or just media in general that deals with your favorite White Wolf role-playing games? Or have you ever wished you could find a forum to share gameplay that you have recorded, one which wouldn't be drowned out by random posts and discussion? so that your media could get the attention you want. Well, we have the answer for you in a Facebook group we run called White Wolf RPGs Gameplay and Media. The group is specifically ran with the sole intent of it being a one-stop shop for people to view or share media involving the games we all love. We take thorough steps to ensure the page does not become cluttered and is easy to traverse. We are currently over 1,000 members strong, and we are continuing to rapidly grow with new media being shared every day. Stop on by. We hope to see you there.